Hello, and welcome to the Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Divya, and this week Eliza, Inika, Madeline, and I spoke with Brianna Sia, co founder and CEO of Generation Vote, which is building a movement of young people to advance youth voting rights and transform the way young people engage in politics. In light of recent events, we want to discuss the history and future of civic unrest, protest, and most importantly, movement building, and the importance of young people being at the center. Movements don't get talked about, or built, nearly enough in our view, so we broke it down in order to build them up. We talked about the importance of story, strategy, and structure in change-making movements, and of ensuring that all participants have internalized them. We talked about different paths to create change outside in as activists versus inside out as elected officials and the power of bringing these paths together. We talked about how to use our voices as citizens most effectively and the importance of building and broadening support for democracy and public institutions. And we talked about the power of nonviolent movements remaining nonviolent even in the face of violence and attacks. Thank you for joining us. Hi everyone, my name is Divya Ganesan. I'm from the Palo Alto Bay Area where I'm a senior. I'm the co-founder of Real Talk with Eliza, which is also an organization to help students learn civil discourse. And I'm really excited to hear from you today, Brie, about how specifically nonviolent protest movements interact with government entities, specifically after what we experienced last week on January 6th. Hi, my name is Eliza, and I'm also a senior from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm really excited to hear from you about your experience with you know, organizing and training leaders and also the differences between youth-led movements and broader movements. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a high school junior from Central New Jersey. In addition to being an NGP podcaster, I'm also co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I'm really excited to talk about youth organizing and the effect that that has on today's politics and the way that politics will be perceived moving forward. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I'm a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm really passionate about creating a sense of community amongst my generation and unifying us regardless of where we fall on the political spectrum. And I'm really passionate about our First Amendment rights and what affects it and to what degree we can carry them out. A little bit about Generation Vote. Generation Vote is a relatively new organization and we are basically building a youth-led movement that defends and advances voting rights for our generation. And in order to do that, we firmly believe in a non-violent movement theory of change. And we are working with incredible organizers across the progressive space to understand what that means and how we can bring that to the democracy space. Because I firmly believe that there is a hunger right now amongst young people to not only vote, but to also protect our right to vote. And I think 2020 definitely made it clear to folks that our democracy is incredibly fragile. So we need to make the case in our schools and in our families that if we want things like affordable health care or a Green New Deal, or we want guns out of our schools, we need to fight for our right to vote at the ballot box. And so happy to share some of the learnings that we have taken from studying contemporary youth-led movements, as well as historical instances 
of young people rising up to the occasion and leading movements. I'm going to go off of Eliza's point about youth mobilization. I'm curious from your perspective, what is the difference between both being a youth organizer leading a movement versus like an adult organizer, but also leading an effort that is mostly youth-based? I'm also a young person myself, right? And I'm, I'm leading an organization that is trying to build a new vision for what is possible for young democracy organizers. Because quite frankly, I think the democracy space is a lot older and not as multiracial as it should be. So what makes youth movements different? I think young people understand the importance of organizing in a movement setting. So what does that mean? That means changing the conversation. That means being not afraid to change the agenda and to shake up the status quo. And I think historically, young people have always understood that that is what is necessary to make change in this country, whether it be the young people that fought for our right to vote in the civil rights movement. Think of John Lewis, when he marched across the bridge and led a student movement decades ago for our right to vote, as well as contemporary movements like March for Our Lives and the young people who were fed up with the status quo around gun control reforms in this country and decided to start a movement based on that. And then to today, uh, March for Our Lives is still around, but there's also another massive youth group organizing a new movement around climate justice. And they're known as the Sunrise Movement. And when the Sunrise Movement erupted into the climate space, a lot of the organizations that are run by older organizers or are legacy organizations were so confused. They were like, what do you mean by a Green New Deal? What do you mean doing a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office? But it worked, right? And they're changing the conversation. And so I think that those are some of the reasons why young people have been so effective in utilizing a movement theory of change, because it comes natural to us to push the status quo and to imagine a better future. Especially when I was little, I didn't think that kids could have an impact on the world, like at all. I was an only child for a long period of time. So my parents were always making decisions that I didn't really have much say in. As I got older and as I started to have siblings, I realized that kids have a lot of power in not just in the family dynamic. And the most important thing that you need to remember when expressing your opinions is to think about how you're doing it. Because it is so easy for people to perceive what you're saying in a way that you're not intending. And I think that also transfers over to examples of protests that we have seen recently with the Black Lives Matter protests and the incident at the Capitol last week. A year ago, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this generation, we we have it coming. Like we are going to be able to change the world. There is going to be more youth voting. There is going to be more youth protesting and fighting for what they believe in. Slowly, my passion and my faith in these methods are starting to slowly dwindle. Every method that we use to share out our opinions are getting clapped back in one way or another. That some group of people are turning their backs to us and saying, hey, you can't do that. Even though we do, we can do that. We need to start thinking creatively and it's definitely going to impact our generation in the ways that we put ourselves forward. So in what aspects do you see our generation moving to change or not change those methods? 
remember that whenever you're feeling discouraged, when you see progress, when we see Black organizers flipping Georgia, and then the next day, there is a coup, attempted coup in our capital, the heart of our democracy, you, you get major whiplash and you're like, I thought we were moving forward, but clearly our country is nowhere near healing and progressing to where we need to be for our generation to have a safe and livable future. And so whenever you're feeling that whiplash or that discouragement, I recommend just taking a step back and remembering that it was young people that have driven forward movements and that we have made progress over time, right? From the civil rights movement to the women's rights movement, to the reproductive rights movement, right? To LGBTQ movement, right? Those were all led by young people. And they constantly were facing adversity and clap heck, like you said, but they made progress. So the importance of legacy as movement organizers. And that's one thing that we're always thinking about at Generation Vote, especially as a voting rights organization, right? Remembering those who've come before us and honoring their legacy. And also remembering that we have a long way to go in order to fulfill their vision of what a true democracy looks like in this country. In terms of what does this mean for our future, for our generation's future, you mentioned the coup last week where seditionists literally went into the Capitol. And the reason why they were there was one, it was driven by racism. Two, it was also driven by this deep, deep myth in our country that our elections are rigged and that our democratic institutions are failing. And so I think what last week showed us is that we have so much work to do as democracy organizers to push back against this myth and to make sure that people in our communities have faith in our democracy on both sides of the aisle. And so that's why I think it's really important as democracy organizers that we evaluate the current ways that we are pursuing, not just voting rights reform, but also pursuing educating the public about our democracy. And if the current ways that we're organizing aren't working, clearly, we have to push forward with new theories of change, such as building movements and sustaining them moving forward. But one thing you just said that really caught my attention was uh, bringing out this idea of true democracy and what that really means to have everybody represented. And I think there are kind of two paths of change that seem most obvious to me. One is kind of outside in grassroots, large movements. And then the other is getting elected to office. And that's really been on my mind as I've seen Cori Bush, for example, activist from Missouri now in the House and really like writing legislation and pushing forward her agenda from that perspective. And I'm curious to hear if you can talk just a little bit about what the differences are between those two paths and how the process of making change is different for a social movement versus a politician. I was so attracted to the book, This is an Uprising, and to the Momentum community because they are advancing this theory of change that brings together structural organizers from groups like where I work at the Brennan Center for Justice, that brings together politicians like AOC, right, and how she's fighting for the Green New Deal, and bringing together those grassroots activists that are trying to make those changes in our communities. So I think the, the two different ways that you mentioned, whether it be folks making change as elected officials and running for office, or as grassroots activists, what we believe in this theory of change is that they must work together. We need to build public popular support for the issues that we care about, whether it be democracy reform, climate justice, racial justice, right? We need to build a public support for that so that the politicians that we elect into office, we have their backs. I always go back to the Sunrise Movement studying how they were one of the first endorsers of AOC's campaign. And in turn, she helped change the conversation on Capitol Hill about the Green New Deal and championed that. 
And so I think that's a perfect example to show us that we need to build political power by electing those into office that are aligned with our values and our issue priorities. And we also need to support them and have their backs in our communities by continuing to educate and mobilize folks around these issues. I feel like with our generation, there's less of a divide between inside out and outside in. I feel like it's more of they feed into each other. And that's how exactly we're mobilizing. Because obviously, if you're under 35, you can't run for office, right? And that's what we all fall into. And it's interesting how the youth are able to have a social impact without really being in office. And that's something that I've done. I've been on phone banks, you know, I've been on letter writing campaigns, I've spoken to elected officials. And even though I'm not someone that can really, you know, write legislation or vote on legislation or anything like that, I still have a voice. And I feel like that's a, something that we could definitely like talk about more. They can still have that voice. They can still act as a constituent. In the past few years, the role of a citizen has not been as emphasized in the public eye or as someone that can really have an impact in politics with like an increase in social media, with an increase in youth organizations, you know, especially during the pandemic, we've seen the role of a citizen be redefined. If you could speak on like what being a citizen is or what the role of the youth is with Gen Vote and like how that's working out, I think that'd be really interesting. You can't run for president until you're 35, but you can definitely run for city council races, right? Or you can run for state legislatures or school board, which is just as important. And in terms of what is the role of a citizen in movement building or in building political power in our communities, I think one thing I would offer here is to think about ways that all the different type of institutions that you interact with on a daily basis, right? Think about those institutions, whether it be school, the shops that you shop at for clothing or skincare or what whatnot, right? Or the media, looking at the musicians that you support or the artists that you support, looking at how all those institutions interact together and how by influencing those institutions, whether it be as a consumer or just as an everyday citizen in your schools, how influencing them to take a stand on issues you care about can also affect the bigger political landscape. It's not all about influencing elected officials because sometimes they can be super stubborn, especially if they're getting funded by corporations. So one thing that we believe in is identifying what are their their pillars of support? Who supports the politicians, right? Um, and how can we as everyday citizens influence the institutions that we interact with on a daily basis to take a stand and influence those who lead our country or our city? I love that frame, you know, bringing power back to the consumer in that it's not just like the political leaders. Clearly, you have a lot of expertise in things like this. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about both like what was it like starting Generation Vote? And what has been your mindset towards growth, expansion, and I guess in a sense like quality control as well as you have done that? I started Generation Vote in 2017 as a college student. And the reason why we started Generation Vote was to really just spread a new model of organizing for local elections. So it was part of that resistance wave post-2016 election. And so as we started to spread the GenVote model of trainings to college campuses across New York State, we were trying to get young people to vote. But over and over again, young people were coming to us and saying, we can't get a ride to the poll site. There was no poll site near our campus. Or we missed the deadline to register to vote or change our party because New York State had one of the most restrictive um, deadlines in the country. Or there's no early voting in New York, so I can't vote on um, election day because I have five classes and an exam. 
right? So all of these students are coming to us with these issues of trying to cast their ballot. And that's when we decided as an organization, you know, if we want to achieve our mission of getting young people involved in local elections, we need to reform our democracy. And so we started at the local level and we are the lead organizers for one of the largest voting rights coalitions in the state. And we pushed Albany to have the first ever voting reform package passed in over a hundred years, um, passed just in 2019, right? At the same time though, while we were trying to pass major voting reforms in New York state and make the cases to why New York was also suffering from voter suppression, we were talking to activists across the country we have friends across the country in Texas, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Florida, and they were telling us about how they were also facing challenges to their rights to vote and actively were being targeted by voter suppression tactics. And so when we heard that and when we investigated this issue, we realized that this is a crisis, a democratic crisis for our generation. And in order to meet that moment, we need to change the theory of organizing that Gen Vote was founded on and study how other movements were able to achieve change on a national level. So that's how we got here today. And I'm so excited to work with a wonderful group of organizers this year to help us think through what it's gonna take to build a new youth-led voting rights and democracy movement. The question that that raises for me, and I don't know if this is something that you faced, I'm just speculating, but you talked briefly about expanding to other areas and hearing that people had similar concerns. One thing that I've noticed in my experience with organizations that are located in multiple places is even though there might be like similar broad concerns, every community is unique in its needs. And I'm curious to know as a leader in this space, how have you been able to support other communities that maybe aren't identical to what you're familiar with? I think that is a question that's quite unique to the democracy space, because unlike other issue areas, voting is incredibly decentralized in this country. It's both a good thing because it makes our elections more secure, but it's also um, much harder for us to fight for more unified voting rights agenda because every single state is different. And of course, there are efforts in Congress like the For the People's Act, which is HR1 and HR4, but really democracy comes down to the local level, right? And so to answer your question, so like how can we approach that? One of the most important aspects of movement organizing is building out the necessary infrastructure within your movement, whether it be in your organization or even in the broader landscape of the issue area that you work in. To build an infrastructure that is able to have mass training capacity, where you are able to bring in thousands of people, hundreds of people, bring them into your organization, train them in the theory of organizing that you are operating on and make sure that they all know and understand the DNA of your movement, which is essentially the story, the strategy, and the structure. That is how movements are able to accomplish this on a national level because they have thought of all this in advance. The movements that have failed to have sustainable organizing were the ones that did not have that structure. They were the ones that were not able to plan this in advance or adapt at least in advance. And so that's how movements are able to do it. And that's how a lot of the movement orgs today are thriving. One of y'all asked about what does it mean to organize a nonviolent movement in the face of what we saw last week? That's something I'm grappling with as well. And I wanted to share a little bit about that because there are different perspectives of whether or not nonviolent organizing works on the left. 
And I'm a firm believer that nonviolence organizing is the way to go. Even when you're faced with a violent white supremacist mob. And the reason why we believe nonviolent organizing is critical to building our movements is because, one, as organizers, you recognize that you are pushing against the status quo. And that status quo is usually upheld by the state, which is the government. And unfortunately, the government has the capacity to commit a lot more violence than we can. And so in order to protect your people, to protect your families, to protect yourselves, it is important to stay principled in being nonviolent. And if the government is going to show brutal force, which they do in police brutality, the public sees that contrast of peaceful organizers facing the violence of the state, facing the violence of white supremacy mobs. And that makes them more likely to agree with you on your issue and to stand with you for that long-term change. And also, you know, historically, of our nation's and world's greatest leaders were huge, huge supporters of nonviolence organizing. So earlier this year, when we experienced kind of the height of Black Lives Matter mobilization, there was immense amounts of nonviolent protests. But there were also protests that did either coincide or, or occur with violence and riots. And I'm wondering, from an organizing perspective, like what was the impact of that? And what would you say to that? Yes. And I was on the streets with like Freedom March NYC, for example, is a local Black Lives Matter group. And they are very principled in staying nonviolent. And I remember talking to the organizers there and they were very upset when folks that were not associated with their organization showed up to their protest and started intentionally vandalizing or burning stuff, right? Because they were not part of that group. And so I'm not one to say whether or not violence by the organization that is organizing the event is warranted, right? Because that is by that is the organizer's decision. But in terms of the effectiveness of it, as you all saw, those riots gave Fox News amazing headlines to put on TV nonstop and mobilize their bases, right? And so if you do not want to give the other side more reasons to oppose your movement, it is important that we stay principled in our values. And if your values are nonviolence, you stick with that value and you make sure that everyone that shows up to your event or to your organization knows that. And if that's not for them, fine. There's other groups that are more aggressive and have different theories of change. And that's fine, right? And so I have my own personal views in terms of this summer about the messaging around the riots and everything, but that's just one thing I've learned coming out of this summer. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.